0: morning. It's uh, great to be with you. It's a sheer joy to be back at church together. uh, I mean, I was glad for the online services. And, uh, you know, talking on the phone is not such a bad thing, but talking in person is a different thing, isn't it? And um, so it's just, it's super to be back. Uh, Let me start with a question. How do you keep yourself clean? What are the habits and practices and patterns that you use uh, to make sure that you stay clean and fresh and that if you do get dirty, that you do something about it. Of course, we're all uh, more aware than ever about viral cleanliness. Here we are sitting 1.5 metres apart. Uh, No one, I think, accidentally sung. There were some um, recalcitrants at uh, Ashfield last week who just couldn't help themselves and would sing, so they got stomped on very quickly. Just say it, don't spray it. Um, You've washed your hands more times in the last four months than in the previous four years or maybe even four decades. Right, And, and did you wash your hands coming in? Hands up, everyone who washed their hands coming in. Hands up if you didn't wash your hands coming in. And so here's the the thing I want you to notice. Do you realise that everyone thinks you're a bad person? It's a really interesting thing at the moment, isn't it, what hand-washing is not just about viral cleanliness, is it? It's about something else. We are hyper-aware when it comes to cleanliness right now. But of course, that's not the cleanliness that I want us to reflect on together this morning. It's not the cleanliness of body, but cleanliness of soul. How do you keep your soul clean? And when it does get dirty, what do you do about it? If only it was as easy as a bit of alcohol gel. The state of having a clean soul is being unashamed. Unashamed. When you can look at yourself and others in the eye and you don't cringe or hide but you stand tall and firm in your gaze. And of course the ultimate state of having a clean soul is when you can, so to speak, look God in the eye in the same way because you have a Father in heaven who loves you and so you're unashamed before Him. And correspondingly, the state of having an unclean soul is shame that sense that you're not a worthy person to be connected with by others or even by yourself. And so you experience what's called self-loathing, a self that judges yourself, a split self. And especially that dreadful experience of ultimate shame when you find yourself not a worthy person to be connected with, even by God. Our society doesn't talk much anymore about cleanliness of soul, For some centuries, we've been a culture that's more into guilt than shame. But in some ways, that's changing right now. The primary mode of engagement on social media, uh, the whole practice of identity politics and political correctness is all about shame. Publicly exposing, shaming someone as not just having done bad things, but being a bad person. That, that's why I say we've linked being a good person to washing your hands. And so if, if you get found, if you, if you sneeze, have you had this experience yet? If you sneezed in a public place, and what happens then? <laughs> Everyone looks at you. And if you didn't get your elbow up to completely smother, then, then you see, you, you feel just a small hint of shame. You're shamed by others. You're, you've not just done a bad thing you're a bad person. And how many times have you heard that phrase? It's a phrase such an interesting phrase. It's around so commonly now. I'm not a bad person. That's a shame phrase. We're a little more into shame than we used to be. And in lots of ways, that actually brings us back closer to the first century in the world view of Jesus and his contemporaries. Issues of honour and shame, of cleanliness and dirtiness, of acceptability and rejectability by God and by others and by yourself. These were the categories in which the biggest questions of a life well-lived and relationships well-loved were conducted. These are the categories. And that's exactly what we see in this incident in Matthew's Gospel. It all starts innocuously enough, chapter 15, verse 1. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said... Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands before they eat. They, they didn't use the alcohol wash. Um, this, the catalyst for this moment is his hand washing, or rather lack of it on the part of the disciples of Jesus, which is big for the Pharisees, and yet another black mark against Jesus in their eyes. Now, of course, the issue is not whether you wash your hands before you eat as a matter of hygiene. And remember, no running water, n- no soap, Different world, very different world, don't forget that ever. Right? First century, everyone died young from really bad diseases, lots of really bad stuff. Washing your hands made, a good, made lots of good sense in terms of hygiene. But the issue is not hygiene, the issue is ritual purity, a religious, physical act which indicated a religious, spiritual state. And, and you can see how the two are linked together, right? The, the physical act and the spiritual state are linked because they're both about being clean. And the Pharisees were almost obsessed with this kind of thing. Uh, nowadays, of course, Pharisees have a terrible reputation. You don't say about someone, oh, my good Pharisaical friend. Right? That's just not a term of um, endearment. It's a term of insult. In their own day, they were hugely respected, stunningly committed Jewish people. The word Pharisee itself really interestingly means, do you know what it means? It means the separated. The separated. In a multi-ethnic, religiously plural context like the first century Roman Empire where there were endless failures by Jewish people and leaders to stay pure in their devotion to God who became defiled by the culture around them, the Pharisees went down a different path. They turned to the Torah, the law, of God, with a zeal, which was stunning. They, were, they weren't ministers, actually. They weren't priests. They were lay people, right? Uh, ministers are paid to be good. Lay people are good for nothing. Oh, no, no, that's not right. <laughs> they were lay people. They didn't get paid to do it. They taught and encouraged people to live by the law of God and to stay pure for God and clean from spiritual dirt around them In the most stunning ways. Interestingly there is no Commandment for people to wash their hands Spiritually in the Old Testament. The only Commandment for that was for the priests to wash Their hands but the Pharisees said you know what We're not going to go for second Rate here. We are going to go way Over and above And so they codified a vast Set of rules that expressed that Intent from hand washing and utensil Washing to keeping the Sabbath To tithing their herbs Mint and Dill and cumin. Right, remember? And the intent, of course, is perfectly good. The intent is perfectly good, but the effect is disastrous, what one commentator calls boundary spirituality. Boundary spirituality is when what constitutes a life pleasing to God and clean from spiritual refinement becomes defined in terms of the acts rather than the heart in terms of the edges rather than the center, the maximums and minimums, what distinguishes you and separates you out rather than what you have in common. And that's the whole purpose of boundary spirituality. It is to Pharisee you, to mark you out as clean and pure and special amongst the special people. And the Pharisees used their boundary spirituality to define the disciples of Jesus and by implication Jesus himself as out. And Jesus calls it forward, it is verse 7, You hypocrites! Isaiah prophesied rightly about you when he said, This people honours me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching human precepts as doctrines. You see the framework that Jesus brings to this and, and by which he interprets their rule-keeping efforts at spiritual cleanliness, lips, but not hearts. It should, be, it should be lips because of hearts, shouldn't it? But he sees right through them, lips, not hearts, human precepts as the doctrine of God. It's a disaster. They think they're honouring God, but the very things that they thought of as worship are just vanity in vain. The acts by which they thought to maintain their cleanliness of soul turn out to be that which make them dirty, Um, You know the Pharisees didn't like Jesus when he said this sort of thing, and I don't really blame them. At one level, Uh, all their life they'd worked hard, meticulously to avoid sin this way, and and Jesus draws them into the realization that they have failed completely. Could they cope with that? Could you cope with that? In fact, it gets worse. The very rules that they use turn out to be Disobedient to God Verse 3, why do you break the commandment of God For the sake of your tradition For God said, honour your father and your mother And whoever speaks evil of father or mother must surely die But you say that whoever tells father or mother Whatever support you might have had from me is given to God Then that person need not honour the father So for the sake of your tradition You make void the word of God Jesus picks up on a practice at the time Which was to dedicate one's possessions or wealth to God uh, Naming it um, as Korban is, um, is, is the, the, te- the, the technical term, and we read in Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark in its version of this. And the key issue here is that once this kind of vow had been made, it couldn't be unmade. It was dedicated to God, your property was dedicated to God, and could not be used by anyone else. And so here's the thing this is just a really great way, isn't it? What kind of kudos do you get by declaring your house? and your property, your slaves perhaps, that all your wealth belongs to God. What a pious person you must be. The happy trick was, though, that while you were alive, you could still use it yourself. It only came into effect in relation to you when you died, although it meant that those things could never pass from your hands. It was a way of of worshipping God with your lips. It was a way of worshipping God with your lips. Speaking this vow of commitment, but without the heart, without it touching you in any way at all. And Jesus holds this particular habit up to the light and he discerns it for what it is. It's not just a conceited piece of play acting. It's not just a trivial bit of religious hypocrisy. In fact, catastrophically, it becomes a way of avoiding the command of God, the actual call of God on their lives. God's purposes are plain. Honor your father and mother. Don't even speak ill of them. And yet the effect of this practice was that even if your parents were destitute, having declared your good goods and uh, possessions korban, it meant you were not permitted to help them. You had to leave them to starve to death. It made void the word of God. Rejecting what God had said in favor of what they themselves, the Pharisees, had said. And Jesus says... This wasn't the only thing that they did like this. Now, this is how boundary spirituality always goes. This is how boundary spirituality always goes when it's used as a a strategy for cleanliness of soul. It's always that it ends up more interested with the external and visible rather than the internal and invisible. It's always more concerned with what other people think. That's why it's gotta be about the externals because what other people know about us is is what's external, you see. And traditions, Jesus talks about, the traditions of the elders very often become boundary forms of spirituality. Um, It's happened with an earlier generation of Christians uh, it's, it's, it's easy to criticise others, right? So let's do that for a little while. Uh, an early generation of Christians uh, took seriously the command not to speak of the future presumptuously. You know how um, James talks about this? Don't say, I'll do such and such. James says, say, I'll do such and such. Do you remember? If God wills. If God wills. And so um, Christians would just, would just talk about the future and I, I, I do this myself. I'll, I'll often add a statement about the future saying, God willing, God willing. But then you can, you can turn that into something that's a little more spiritual by giving it a Latin phrase. Okay? Deo volenti. God willing. Deo volenti. And then you can abbreviate the Latin phrase with DV. So does anyone remember this? Do you experience this? Where, where people just say, oh, look, I'm, 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 I'm hoping to go for a holiday uh, next month. Date DV. Deo volenti. Until people would say the letters, they didn't have the faintest clue what it was that they were saying at all and it did not express any actual heart acknowledgement that my times are in his hands. But it's a good thing to say, isn't it, God willing? It's a good thing to express the reality that you get that your times are in God's hands, not to pretend that you're an autonomous person. That's a Christian of a former generation. You see, that's the problem with boundary spirituality, not, not the attitudes of heart that find concrete and repeated expression, which eventually become traditions. They're, that's all they're all good. That's necessary part of living in a concrete material world which is good in its creation. The issue becomes when those concrete forms and traditions become the replacement for, rather than the expression of the heart reality and then it produces terrible distortions. It's possible to think that you're becoming more and more spiritual when, in fact, you're just becoming more and more smug and judgmental. Uh, Winston Churchill told that a political opponent of his by the name of Cripps, and you do love the fact that he had that kind of name too, don't you, right? Cripps. He was widely disliked for being smug and self-righteous, had just stopped smoking cigars and Churchill who was nearly as good as Paul Keating in his ability to insult people Churchill commented quote too bad those cigars were his last contact with humanity another time uh, the story goes Churchill saw crips passing by and remarked there but for the grace of god goes god <laughs> and jesus knows What constitutes spiritual substance and what's just play acting? Hypocrite, right? That's the the mask of a play. Fiddling around at the edges. And he calls the crowd to him, verse 10, and said to them, listen and understand, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Um, Defilement, that's uncleanliness of soul, you see. That's what's what's at stake in this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees spiritual unfittedness for the presence and purpose of God now and in the future. Uncleanness of soul has got nothing to do with the kinds of rules that regulate with how or what you eat or frankly, for that matter, any of the other kinds of boundary markers we can set up. It's not what goes in, right? You have your dirty hands that are ritually unclean and you touch the food and you the food goes into you and you become unclean. That's what the Pharisees... no. No. It's what comes out. Now the disciples are mystified because the old covenant does have commands about what to eat and what not to eat and so on and so always through the perky Peter they ask Jesus, verse 16, explain this parable to us. Then he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and then goes out into the sewer? I just I just love how gloriously pragmatic Jesus is about this. There's there's nothing kind of squeamish here. Of course, what you eat and whether you eat it with wash or unwashed hands doesn't affect your spiritual status. That stuff's to do with your gastrointestinal tract, not your godly spiritual tract. That kind of thing ends up not in God's books but in your dunny. Well, if that's not what makes the difference, what does? Well, verse 20, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions and murder and adultery and fornication and theft and false witness and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. And suddenly Jesus is crystal clear. And he says two things about what makes us unclean in the sight of God. First, he speaks of the character of these things. The things that make us unclean have got little to do with boundary markers like washing. They're all about the direction of our affections, toward whom our lives are lived. What defiles a person is a life set towards oneself. Notice that these things, which follow the, the pattern and the actual order of the what's called the second table of the Ten Commandments, not the ones that are directed towards God and and parents but the ones that are directed Outside the the murder and Adultery and theft and False witness Right They're they're Things that are fundamentally Self oriented And and Jesus Knows that we are created beings We're designed according To our nature to love God First and above all things and to love Our neighbour as well, It's that simple, as Katie reminded us. It's that simple. A- and then to, to put ourselves as the servant of God and others. But the character of these things that defile, well, it's because they reverse this order. They put self-first, self-interest, self-indulgence, self-gratification, self-fulfillment, self-promotion, and others second if and when we choose, and God a distant last place getter. So Jesus speaks of the character of these things. What is it that defiles us and makes us spiritually unclean? It's those things. It's that heart. It's that orientation. Self first. But second he speaks of the origin of these things because for Jesus, uncleanliness is all about the direction of our affections. Therefore, the origin of defilement is the source of those affections. That is our hearts, the very centre of our being the things we love. Our hearts, says Jesus, is where the problem lies. And that is just such a profound and a profoundly disturbing move by Jesus. Because what it means is that you can't cleanse yourself. I asked you before, what do you do to keep yourself clean or make yourself clean if you're dirty? What Jesus is saying is, you know what? You can't. Not, not if it's the problem lies in your heart. Uh, let me give you an illustration. It's like if you get, and I use this illustration deliberately because it has the element of disgust in it, which captures the whole defilement thing. You, if you have had that experience where you have dog poo on your shoes, like, and not just a little bit, right? All right? You've really trod in a big wet one, and 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 you haven't noticed, and you're walking through the house, and and you. The smell reaches your nose, right you just you know that smell? you do know that smell. This very week, very okay, uh, thank you. this week you and you, you what happens is you you smell the smell and then you you turn around and you walk some more to try and find where it is. <laughs> and what are you doing? you're trying to fix the problem up, but since the problem is you, the more you walk around to fix the you just create more defilement. Do you see? When the problem is our hearts, even our attempts to fix things up and clean ourselves will just make us Pharisees. Isn't that exactly what we see in our culture around us at the moment? Isn't that exactly what the political correctness movement is? I think we see this so endlessly in our culture at the moment, mostly good intentions to protect vulnerable and marginalized people. The result of which is to separate some people out as correct and to shame others as socially unclean. We're not into spiritual uncleanliness now, but oh my goodness, as a culture, we are into political uncleanliness. And And the result of this kind of attempt at cleanliness politically and culturally, is just more and more marginalisation and hatred and self-righteousness and smugness, whether you're PC or anti-PC. Do you see the genius of Jesus here? The problem is too deep within us. Whenever we attempt to cleanse ourselves, it won't work. It will just make us Pharisees. Education won't rid us of this defilement, valuable though it is. Legislation can't do it, as though, although we all do need good, proper guidelines and laws. Jesus says, everything we do is the overflow of the heart. And if the heart's unclean, then it will taint everything. Now this is pretty stiff medicine, isn't it? Because if there's one thing that today people say more glibly and contrary to more evidence than ever before, it's that we human beings are basically good, decent and honourable. And Jesus says, you've got to be joking, right? Do you not see... And therefore, the conclusion of our society is that when things go wrong, which of course they do with alarming and predictable regularity, it's because of circumstances or it's because of provocation. And Jesus says, No, it's because of the heart. The Pharisees want to Pharisee themselves, separate themselves out, distinguish themselves as superior to others, by that which is observable and measurable. And Jesus throws a lasso around all of us and says, it's not that simple. It's more than a matter of a few rules and regulations. The issue is at the core of our being. Now, Jesus engages in diagnosis here. Okay, and that's one of the challenges with reading just one section of a gospel because we don't get the solution. He doesn't tell us about the cure to spiritual uncleanliness. And in fact, actually, as regards the cure, in the end, he does more than he says. Because what he offers to us is the most radical surgery ever, a genuine heart change. Because nothing else will suffice, right, if the heart's the problem. It's only when he enters the place of utter defilement it's only when he endures the infinite shame of the cross, exposed and ridiculed and humiliated and disgraced, that external act of a spiritual reality because that just indicates that he's taking all of our dirt upon him. He's stripping it from us and he's taking it into himself so that he is the one who is rejected as unworthy by the Father, the Father whom he loved from all eternity. And because of that utterly utterly, infinitely glorious act of grace, we become clean you become clean cleansed from every sin, undefiled and in him, undefilable and it's that grace that will actually change your heart bit by bit Simply trying to lift yourself up by your own bootstraps can't work, not just because you can't do it, but the the very act of doing it makes the problem worse. It makes the poo. Because you'll become self-righteous. Now, the only cure is a new start in God's grace. And as it more and more sinks into your heart, so your affections are changed, what you love, who you love, is changed because your vision and your heart are filled with a a Lord, a King who would die for you. And it it may be you've never really grasped that before. That 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 this temptation towards Pharisaism, towards the, the external. Boundary markers becoming actually the thing that we that that whole kind of pattern has actually infected you a little bit more than you've seen before. That you're a decent sort of person, not like the fanatics or the rebels or the crooks. You're a good person. You don't do that stuff. Your boundary markers are in place. But that will just make you more and more deeply self-righteous. And so you need to see Jesus. But even if you're a person whose heart has been renewed, it, it, the, the warning here is to take care, to take heed. What are the boundary markers that give structure to your life in Christ that the external acts that enact what it is to have been spiritually cleansed by Jesus, the Pharisee makers, the separators out their actions and duties that just run the risk of being cut free from the heart of love for God, which produced them in the first place. And what we see here is a warning. Don't let that happen. Don't allow that, which is to be the fruit of a renewed heart become a replacement for a renewed heart. Come to church and read the Bible and pray in your devotions and say grace at mealtimes, even in restaurants. You do that? Say grace in restaurants? People see you and you say, I'm doing this for Jesus. And that's good. I was once at a restaurant, we used to hold hands. Back in the good old days when you could hold hands at a restaurant, the four of us were at a table, we held hands, which meant that we had to lean forward, so we were all looking into our soup, and in the middle of the grace, the waiter came up and said, something wrong with the soup. (laughs) No, we're Christians, and we're saying grace to this, obviously, camp waiter. And we felt pretty good about that. We said grace in a restaurant. Understand theology and serve in ministry and use Christian language and do all of these good things because they're just all part of the rhythms of life, right? Of course they are. Ah, but do them as the overflow and expression of a heart that is soaked in his love and mercy and cleanliness. That he cleaned you up, not you yourself. Cleansed in the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I want to give you just a moment to reflect. Um, Dave's going to lead us in prayer, and particular prayer of confession, as we take this kind of such a terrible temptation to self-righteousness, uh, There's warning. So let me just give you a moment or two to to reflect on where you might have fallen.